Welcome to Homefront Rising, the U.S. Tour of Duty podcast in partnership with Whittier Library and Citizen Network TV. We are streaming on multiple channels, and our guest today is Scott Ritter, a former U.S. Marine Intel officer. His tours of duty included implementing arms control agreements in the former Soviet Union, serving on the staff of U.S. General Norman Schwarzkopf during the Gulf War, and later as a chief U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. His expertise is quite relevant to current events in several ways, and we're going to get his take on the Russia-Ukraine situation, Russophobia, censorship, and maybe even the price of gas. Scott, how you doing? I was with you up until the last one. <laughs> no one knows how you get the price of gas. It's purely speculative, apparently. All right, then I don't feel so ignorant, but I was hoping you could give us a little clue. It is pretty mysterious to a lot of people. Yeah. But let's let's come back to that later. Uh, Russophobia is really escalating, and you've been writing about it. Uh, you've been actually addressing the uh, Ukraine situation from multiple angles, but one of them has been Russophobia. And I think uh, we should start with um, a clip from The View and uh, take it from there. Here's a quote from you, actually. In one I think that's an incredibly relevant question. Yeah. And I think DOJ, in the same way that it is uh, setting up a task force to investigate oligarchs, should look into people who are Russian propagandists and shilling for Putin. That's being, if you are a foreign asset uh, to a dictator, mm -hmm. it should be investigated. And in fact, I remember when Tulsi Gabbard, mm -hmm. and I even hate that we're discussing it because I think to myself, who is this woman? She's a, you know, she's no longer in Congress. She's a failed presidential candidate. Yeah. She only practically exists on Twitter. And the fact that we're giving her oxygen is what makes her relevant, that we're talking about her on hot topics. But on the other hand, how do you not call out something that is repeating mm -hmm. false Russian propaganda well, that has been brought down? I, they used to arrest people for doing stuff like this. If they thought you were uh, colluding with a Russian agent, if they thought you were putting out information or taking information and handing over to Russia. They used to actually investigate stuff like this, and I guess now, you know, there seems to be no bars. And people are not being told to hate Putin. Putin doesn't need a reason to be hated. It's pretty much clear. He started a war. He started a war. An unnecessary but this war is kind of like, wanted. isn't this... All right, <laughs> I'm, gl I'm glad you're laughing, because... Uh... There's an alternative reaction to that, which is even worse. Now, now, before you even respond to that, let's get that Keith Olbermann uh, tweet. Tori, can you find the tweet? The Keith Olbermann responding to that clip. They are Russian assets and there is a war. There's a case for detaining them militarily. Trials are a sign of good faith and patience on the part of democracy. So... On one hand, you know, you can laugh at these people and dismiss them as being ridiculous. But on the other hand, Keith Olbermann has close to a million followers on Twitter. The view, the average audience, I think, is over two million people per episode. So, you know, this is the new McCarthyism. And uh, I mean, do you feel threatened? Are you, do you feel like these people are basically targeting you as a domestic enemy? I mean, look, 
first of all, let's just let's talk about who we're talking about. Whoopi Goldberg, Anna Navarro, and Keith Olbermann. Three of the most useless human beings on the face of the earth. They have no power. They've got nothing. I mean, yeah, they're followed by people who have no power, uh, idiots, uh, morons, and whatever else you want to call them. Who is Tulsi Gabbard? She's a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army Reserve who's gone to war for her country. None of the three people you just talked about have had the guts to do anything like that. Whoopi Goldberg, a has-been actress. Anna Navarro, who knows where she came from? Some political consultant. And Keith Olbermann, an idiot who got thrown off a of TV for being an idiot. Um, so no, I mean, come on. Let's, let's, but it does touch upon a, a deeper problem because, you know, I mean, first of all, there's a thing called the Constitution of the United States of America. Maybe if one of these three people actually served their country and they took the oath and understood what it meant to put your life on the line to defend the Constitution, they'd have a greater appreciation for the rights that are enshrined in that document. Keith Oberman, there is a war. There's no war. The United States is not at war. Russia is at war with Ukraine. And let me let me remind Keith Olbermann that Russia is at war with Ukraine because Ukraine is a nation that's been taken over by neo-Nazis, the people that we used to be at war with. So with all due respect to these three people, they belong in the dung heap of whatever dung heap exists for idiots who pontificate things they know nothing about. Russophobia is real, though. And the reason why it exists is because of the ignorance of the American people. You know, back in the Cold War, back when I was in the military, when I was training to fight the Soviet army. I mean, that was my purpose. Uh, you know, it was called the Cold War because although we weren't in a hot war, we were in a virtual state of war with the Soviet Union. And, you know, at that time, yeah, we, you know, if, if you were caught colluding or, you know, conspiring or whatever, you know, some people could say that's an issue, but it wasn't a crime to be sympathetic to the Soviet Union. You got looked down on. It was a crime to give them secrets. But, you know, we, we had Americans traveling over there. We had academics meeting with their Soviet counterparts. Um, you know, we, we had cultural exchanges. Uh, people tried to understand the enemy. I mean, let's take Richard Pipes, an esteemed historian from Harvard, uh, wrote some great books about uh, Russian history, Soviet history. Now, he was a hardcore, you know, neoconservative, conservative kind of guy who advised Ronald Reagan, you know, on the Soviet Union. And uh, he espoused hardline policies. Um, but his policy posturing came from a foundation of knowledge. I mean, you, you might disagree with the conclusions that this guy reached, but you cannot in any way denigrate the absolute fountain of knowledge that he represented. This man knew the history, knew the culture, knew the language, knew the people. Um, and, and, and you had to respect that because he respected them, them being Russia, them being the Soviet Union. Uh, so did just about everybody else who was involved in the Cold War, me. You know, I was a foreign area officer, a Soviet specialist, somebody who studied the language, the history, the culture, not because I wanted to be buddy-buddy with these people, because I wanted to kill them. But in order to kill them, you got to know them. You got to know how they think. Then later on as a weapons inspector, uh, you know, I learned to turn the page and actually become friendly and friends uh, with these people. But it was all, everything I ever did vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union or Russia uh, came from a foundation of fact, 
based knowledge. We used to have institutions uh, in the United States that trained people to be foreign area officers, to be uh, foreign service officers, all with the uh, Soviet or Russian uh, specialties. These are institutions that date back to World War II when we used to be allied with the Soviet Union. And we were preparing an entire generation of Soviet specialists to work you know, together with the Soviets in a post-war environment. Now, the Cold War came in, but these institutions remained to train Soviet specialists. And you know, for, uh, for decades, we cranked out some of the top level people in the, that America's ever had when it comes to knowing Russia, knowing the Soviet Union. But when the Cold War ended, um, suddenly this became inconvenient. I'll give you an example. In 1989 and 1990, I received classified commendations from the director of the CIA for the work I did in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. I was considered to be one of the top Soviet analysts. And yet in 1992, when I was interviewed by the new CIAs, uh, you know, they got rid of SOVA, which was the, 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 the Soviet anal uh, analysis branch, the elite of the CIA, where the top analysts went, they dissolved that. They replaced it with something called the Office of Russian East European Affairs, OREO. Uh, and I was interviewed by OREO and I was told, and they were only talking about two years separation, that my thinking was, you know, archaic, uh, out of date, not in line with the new thinking about Russia. And I was always curious, how can you have new, th I mean, did Dostoevsky suddenly change? Um, did Tolstoy change? Uh, did the Second World War suddenly not matter? Uh, Tukhachevsky's military reforms of the 1920s and 30s, irrelevant? I mean, history doesn't change. What changed was the mindset in Washington, D.C., and indeed the entire nation that viewed the Soviet Union no longer as a peer-level problem set, but rather a defeated enemy that needed to be exploited. Rather than having foundation of knowledge in Russian language, Russian culture, uh, in, in, in Russian history, they brought in economists who were carpetbaggers, who went to the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, and basically exploited them economically. The Soviets, the Russians, were defeated. Uh, and now our academic institutions are no longer cranking out you know, people who are knowledgeable in Russia, but rather uh, cranking out people who can exploit Russia. One of the people that comes to mind is Michael McFall. I mean, he's a smart guy. Let's not denigrate this guy, his, his academic credentials. He went to the right schools, uh, Oxford trained. Um, but he went to Russia, not as somebody who was confronting the Russians, therefore imbued with a deep respect, because I tell you what, you don't, you learn to respect somebody who can kill you <laughs> really quick. You say, I respect that guy. I'm gonna kill him first, but I respect him because he has the capability to, to end my life. But when the enemies gone away and now they're defeated, you'd lose respect for them. Michael McFall never respected Russia. Michael McFaul went in and viewed Russia as an experiment. Michael McFaul was somebody who boosted Boris Yeltsin. Michael McFaul was somebody who was involved with the you know, National Endowment for Democracy and uh, organizations of that ilk who took taxpayer money to go in and run Russia. Um, you know, Yeltsin was a, you know, a sock pup with our hand telling him what to do. Uh, Yeltsin wasn't about democracy. Anybody remembers in 1993, he had tanks fire on the Russian parliament because democracy was inconvenient. We supported that guy because he allowed us to basically steal, his, rob his country blind. 
Um, we paid for his reelection in 1996. All those people that scream about, oh, my God, the Russians interfered in the U.S. election of, uh, uh, of 2016. We bought a damn Russian presidential election in, in, in 1996. So don't come at me like that. Um, you know, but the decade of the 90s for Americans was one of exploiting Russia. But for the Russians, the decade of 90s was a nightmare. This was an economic and social nightmare. The, the safety net that had existed was gone. Pensioners lost their pension. You had old people starving. You had young people unemployed. Um, it, it was just a disastrous time for, for the Russian people. And uh, you know, one of the things that embodied this disaster was if you, the National Security Archive released the phone conversation between Bill Clinton and, uh, and, and Boris Yeltsin. And in there, you, you hear for a decade, you can read how Bill Clinton debased this man, humiliated this man. Yeltsin, a leader of a sovereign nation, is begging for assistance, begging the United States not to expand NATO, begging the United States not to bomb Belgrade. And he was dismissed. In the last two years of these transcripts, look at the bottom of who was listening in on the Russian side. A guy named Vladimir Putin. Putin mm -hmm. sat there and watched his president be humiliated by the United States. And Putin came in and said, never again. And this is the problem. You see, Putin came in and said, I'm not playing this game anymore. And so all the people who are used to viewing Russia as the defeated compliant nation now had to turn around and instead of saying, well, let's respect the Russian nation, let's respect their history, their culture, let's respect the fact that the Russian people want somebody like Putin, we turned it into one man. One man who apparently pissed everybody off because he said, not on my watch when it came to American exploitation. So what's going on today is not about Russophobia because you can't hate that which you don't know. Americans can say, we don't like, they don't know Russians. They've simplified this problem set into one man, Vladimir Putin. And the, the notion that one man reigns over something as complex as Russia is stupidity defined. And yet that's the American people. That's the situation we're at. Well, you write for various publications, one of which is Energy Intelligence, which I'm sure 99.9% .9 of the population has never even heard of. Uh, their audience is primarily oil company executives and the like. And they want real analysis. They want forecast based on, you know, your geopolitical observations and predictions. And you wrote uh, a, a recent article uh, there that talked about how demonizing Putin plays into his hands economically. Can you explain what that's about? Plays into Putin's hand economically. Yeah. You're saying it's taken the heat off. In, in that article, you said it, it takes the heat off of him. And so he now has an excuse. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. To, no. de to, to decouple, I, I think. Is right. The it's a de de decoupling. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, you forgot what you wrote, huh? <laughs> no, no, no. I was just trying to, uh -huh. I, I didn't identify with the uh, description that you put forward. <laughs> okay. So the, the great decoupling. Yes. yes. Look, here, here's the deal. When Vladimir Putin um, came into office, he was not anti-Western. In fact, he was the opposite. He was pro-Western. He very much wanted Russia to integrate economically with the West because he viewed, um, you know, the West as being the 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 the, the source of wealth. Um, but he wanted Russia to be in charge of this. He didn't want Russia to be dictated to by carpetbaggers like McFall and others. Um, 
and, and the more that Putin tried to assert um, Russian sovereignty over its um, not only economic interactions with the West, but also internal domestic things. For instance, uh, Putin didn't want American democracy. He wanted Russian democracy. He didn't want Europe and the United States coming in and buying um, political parties. He wanted Russian people to make decisions based upon you know, their, 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 their own thinking, their own needs, their own wants, not to be dictated to and controlled by the West. Um, and so we started to see this political decoupling uh, that, was, that was taking place uh, between Putin and the United States and Europe. And uh, the, the, the ultimate expression of this, I think, not ultimate, but the, the initial major expression of this was in 2007 when Putin spoke at the Munich Security Conference. And it's sort of funny to watch that video. I've watched it many times. You know, I, I think Vladimir Putin is one of the greatest um, political speakers of our time. If you just take the time to listen to what he says, read his speeches, watch his interaction, spontaneous interaction with, uh, with the press, the man is articulate, knowledgeable, intelligent, witty, um, you know, everything you'd want some, you know, in a speaker to be. But he was invited to the Munich Security Conference in 2007 to give the keynote address. And everybody thought that he would continue the uh, tradition of Boris Yeltsin of kissing up to the West. No, he stood there in front of the, an audience of the, of the West's most powerful leaders and told them that um, you guys suck, <laughs> in short. He said, you know, you follow the United States, this unilateral power who feels that it has a right to invade Iraq and, and disregard international law. Um, and, and, you know, those days are over. Russia is no longer going to be a part of this. Russia doesn't believe in supporting the unilateral power. Russia believes in, you know, creating a multipolar world where other nations have a right to stand up and be heard as equals to the United States. Um, sort of the initiation of a, of, of a political divorce. But even though he was divorcing himself politically, he wasn't divorcing economically. And one of the reasons is that in the 1990s, um, you know, the debacle that, that occurred created uh, this class we call the oligarch class. You hear a lot of people talking about the oligarchs. These are, you know, usually former Soviet officials who took advantage of their, of their insider status to manipulate the capitalization of state enterprises, things that used to be owned by the state were suddenly, you know, how do you capitalize this? And they created these certificates, these shares that they then sold, uh, that, that they handed out to everybody because it was all the people's property. And then they bought them back at rock bottom prices because people were starving to death. So basically they accumulated all the stock shares and, and, and owned these giant monopolies, and they made billions of dollars in the process. And these are the guys that the Michael McFalls and others were working with to control uh, Russian politics. Putin came in and brought the oligarchs together and said, you have a choice. Um, I can kill you, <laughs> and he meant it, um, or you stay out of politics and I let you keep your money. Uh, but if you come after me, um, I will ruin you. And he did. Uh, uh, there, there's a, a guy who owned Luke Oil uh, who tried to get involved in uh, politics. Um, I think it's Kordyovsky or something of this nature. Uh, Putin went after him, ran him out of the country. He's he's living in London today. Um, you know, Putin was dead serious. He, you know, he knew he couldn't take down the oligarchs completely in terms of their finance because they were too financially entwined, you know, intermeshed in the in the in the Russian economy. But he destroyed them politically, and they have no political power. 
But there is a class of people who does, because you know, people say that Russia is this dictatorship. It's not. It's a democracy. It's a democracy. Um, the political parties suck because they're all paid for by the CIA, and so Russia's sort of shut that thing down. But, you know, there is a political party that isn't paid for by the CIA. It's called the Communist Party of Russia, and it actually has a constituency. I think they, they, they run, you know, 22, 26, 27 percent of the vote. So it's not as though there isn't an opposition. Um, this Putin won't allow an opposition that's not paid for by Western interests. Uh, if you're a legitimate Russian opposition, you can cut, you know, you can go out and vote. Putin was winning elections in the 19, in the early uh, 2000s, you know, by 53%, 56%. That ain't a dictator, man. That's, 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 that's called democracy. Um, one of the things- well, well, let's, let's get into a little background on Ukraine also, before we get to the current situation. I mean, you've given us a good historical context as it regards Russia and the former Soviet Union, but let's turn to Ukraine. Um, this is a clip from, uh, Ukraine on fire. Uh, Oliver Stone interviewed various people, including Putin. This is going back a few years. Here's a clip that uh, focuses on Ukrainians collaborating with Nazis uh, during World War II. So I'd like to get your take on this and then bring it into the present day. For most of the Soviet Union, the Second World War was about fighting the invaders of their land. But it wasn't quite so simple for Ukraine. The truth is, Ukraine has never been a united country. When World War II broke out, a large part of Western Ukraine's population welcomed the German soldiers as liberators from the recently forced upon them Soviet rule and openly collaborated with the Germans. The real scale of collaboration was not announced for many years after the war, but we now know that whole divisions and battalions were formed by Ukrainian collaborators, such as SS Galician, Noctigal, and Roland battalions. Just in the beginning of the war, more than 80,000 people from Galicina region voluntarily enrolled into division SS Galician in a month and a half, notorious for their extreme cruelty towards the Polish, Jewish, and Russian people on the territory of Ukraine. Members of these military groups came mostly from the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN, founded in 1929. This organization had an ultimate goal of creating an ethnically pure independent Ukraine and considered terror an acceptable tool for achieving their ends. So that was back in World War II, but how, how, does, how does that history relate to, to the current situation? Because there's a lot of talk about uh, the significance of neo-Nazis in Ukraine nowadays? Well, I mean, as, as, as it clearly pointed out, um, there's a problem in Western Ukraine. Western Ukraine used to be Eastern Poland. It used to be Galatia, part of the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, it was only when the Soviet Union moved in in 1939 that they carved off, um, you know, this former part of Poland and, um, and, and, and made it part of, attached it to, to Ukraine. Uh, but the people there um, resented, hated Soviet, um, you know, the, the Soviet Union. And there, there was a, there's a huge resistance. Uh, they, 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 they fought, um, you know, from 39 to 41 when the, when the Germans came in, as the, the documentary says, they, they aligned themselves with the Germans. Later on, around 1944, when the uh, tide was turning, um, they turned on the Germans and they fought both the Germans and the Soviets. And then when the Germans were defeated totally, they stayed on with the uh, in fighting the Soviets. And from 1945 to 1953, they ran 
a massive insurgency that was funded by the CIA, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives in this insurgency. This was a big deal. This wasn't, you know, small, small potatoes. The Soviets lost uh, between 20 and 30,000 security forces and soldiers fighting this insurgency. It was finally defeated militarily, but then it just went underground, again, supported by the CIA. The CIA continued to fund these people uh, up until 1990 when the Cold War ended. Um, we funded Nazis. That's all I'm going to say. The CIA funded Nazis because the enemy of our uh, of our enemy is our friend or something of that nature. Um, but in 1990, uh, you know, the the when the Soviet Union collapsed and Ukraine uh, rose up, became independent. Um, you know, these 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 nationalists were trying to find their feet. They they, they again they they con they constitute a distinct minority in terms of political aspect. But here's here's the thing. Even though people aren't going to sign up and say, I'm going to join the Nazi party. When you say Stepan Bandera, who was the leader of this, this, this organization of Ukrainian nationalists, they say, yes, he's the father of Ukraine, Ukrainian nationalism. Um, they ignore the fact that he murdered Jews, that he's anti-Semitic, that he fought on side of Hitler. And they say that, you know, he is the symbol of Ukrainian nationalism. So even though people say that the you know the far right parties only get you know single digit support politically, the vast majority of Ukrainians support Stepan Bandera as the national hero. That's why the parliament voted to put his statue up to, to have a Stepan Bandera Day uh, to create name highways and such after this this Nazi leader. It's a vicious, cruel, um, disgusting uh, ideology here. It's not. You know, when you say, well, he's Ukrainian nationalist, what does that mean? A, it means you hate Jews. Okay, let's just be frank. Well, wait a minute. They have Zelensky as their president. How could they possibly hate a Jew? Um, they hate Jews. They hate all Jews. You think they respect Zelensky? They don't respect Zelensky at all. I mean, right now, Zelensky is being propped up by CIA-funded propaganda services, but the Ukrainians have no use for Zelensky. It's just that he, he was... You know, positioned by another Jewish oligarch who owned all of the media companies that Zelensky, you know, had his famous TV show on, you know, where he played a president. Uh, you know, but they, they they positioned him to oppose Poroshenko, a a politician who popularity had collapsed, and so Zelensky was brought in at a moment in time, not because he was Jewish. He didn't run as the Jewish president. Uh, he ran as the guy who was who 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 could bring peace. But he wasn't allowed to bring peace because the nationalists told him that if he embarks on policies that that they disagree with, they will kill him. You know, when we saw this play out in 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 2019, I believe when he or maybe not, yeah, uh, maybe before that, there was a ceasefire declared um, shortly after he was elected, and he went to the front lines to tell the Azov Battalion, which is the military arm of these neo Nazis to stand down, to disarm. And they basically, in, 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 in a sense, said, shove it up your, we don't care about you, leave. They laughed at him. He said, I'm the president of Ukraine. They said, get out of here. Okay, what nation tolerates this? People right. keep well, Would you say he's like, the, is he the equivalent or, you know, analogous to uh, the sort of person that we would call uh, an Uncle Tom here in the U.S., you know, the, the black person who's very deferential to white people and, you know, really 
advances the white agenda, so to speak, historically. No, I, I, or, or do you think it's just doing the best he can? Or, or, or I mean, can you put that into a little bit more perspective and, and how you feel about Zelensky? Well, well, first of all, let's understand that, you know, he's a lawyer, so mm -hmm. we have to respect the fact that he's not stupid. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I've watched his comedy. It's some of it's pretty funny. Uh, and, and comedians uh, tend to be intellectually squared away people because they're delving into, uh, you know, aspects of society, trying to find angles. So, you know, they're not, you know, totally inert when it comes to uh, intellectual capacity. But he's, he's not a leader of men. He's not a natural politician. Uh, he is an actor. He reads scripts. And he was, his entire presidential candidacy was a scripted affair, a scripted affair. And it was written by others. He was handled. He won the election because other people were able to script something that was more convincing to the Ukrainian population than the incumbent president. Then he became president and he tried to enact policies that worked off of a script. But real life isn't a script. It's not a TV show. Right. You know, right. stuff happens. And suddenly you have to be called upon to do things. And he wasn't up to the task. He collapsed. He, he literally was not up to the task. He changed his cabinet, got rid of uh, knowledgeable people, uh, was bringing in his, his insiders, his inside circle of people, um, you know, from his comedy routine. So basically, we had Ukraine being governed by a comedian who was being advised by people who write jokes for comedians, literally. And, you know, and so this, this is very weak. And that kind of weakness is exploited by people with not only, you know, the political will, but the, the, the ability to inflict force. You know, in America, we talk about January 6th, you know, the worst day in American history, apparently when a riot got out of control and thousands of people stormed the U.S. Capitol, and it's called an insurrection. And yet, for some reason, this insurrection stopped short of its ultimate objective, even though it seized control of the building, and they left voluntarily. Um, boom. I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to downplay what happened. It disgusts me what happened. But this should never happen in a, in a democracy, especially a democracy like the United States. But it ain't a, a, an insurrection. An insurrection is where you have the military arm of the Nazi party telling the president of Ukraine that if you enact the Minsk Peace Accords, we will hang you by the neck until dead. Mm. If you undertake a policy that we don't support, we will kill you and your family. That's an insurrection, America. That's what we, you know, that's what really is going, and that was Ukraine. It's a weak president dominated by these Nazis. And these Nazis are everywhere. Even though, they, you know, they, their political party can't get, <laughs> sorry, you put up a picture of Zelensky. Uh, you made me lose my track. But you can't, you know, they, they, these, the Nazis aren't just isolated battalions. But let me just start again. If the United States of America armed forces Let's say United States Marine Corps. I joined the Marine Corps. I love the Marines. But if I joined the Marines and found out that in every regiment, we had a battalion of Nazis, real Nazis, swastika, Sig Heil, the whole thing. I'd say, what the hell's wrong with the Marine Corps? And what the hell's wrong with America? Oh, don't worry, Scott. It's just a minority. Oh, they're Nazis. These are the most worst, vile, disgusting people in the planet. We should be killing them now. We should be turning all our guns on them and slaughtering them. But instead... Bring them into the Marine Corps? No, they brought them into the Ukrainian army officially. 
All right. Well, let's 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 discuss that now in terms of the current situation. Can you see the map on your uh, computer oh, monitor? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, to a lot of people, you know, they hear the names of nations and cities, and they're they're just words. So, I think it might be helpful to uh, you know explain exactly what's going on while we look at the map. The shaded area, I, I guess, is meant to represent where uh, Russia is occupying the territory now. What's the latest as far as you understand? Well, from what I understand, Russia is 19, 20 days into a um, major military operation designed to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine. Uh, and in the process, uh, achieve the political objective of getting Ukraine to uh, agree to permanent neutrality. That is, they won't allow NATO. This is big boy war, this big arrow war. You know, in America, we're so used to what I call small arrow war because we spent 20 years doing small arrow stuff where we allowed a bunch of, you know, thick neck, thick arm special forces types tell us this is what war is all about. You know, living in an air conditioned barracks in a foreign country, uh, getting perfect intelligence from uh, systems that are never jammed, uh, being able to plan the perfect mission, getting in helicopters and able to fly into an unsuspecting village, uh, leap out, kick down the door, gun down families, kill wedding parties, and then get back and fly back to their air-conditioned building and say, we won. We're the best in the world. That's not war, guys. That's a game. This is war. This is where armies are going in and fighting armies. Full-scale combat, thousands of tanks, artillery systems, infantry. It's bloody on both sides. Let's never once denigrate the courage of the Ukrainian military. All right? They have been, since 2015, trained to NATO standards. They are interoperable with NATO. They have the same equipment, the same communications. Their leaders are trained. That means that a, a Ukrainian battalion right now can go to a NATO exercise and just plug right into other NATO forces. These guys are good, really good. And the Russians are kicking their ass. The Russians are literally grinding them down to dirt. If you look to the right, you'll see the area controlled by Russian-backed separatists. That's Lugansk and Donetsk. They have their own little military force that's been beefed up by the Russians. They are conducting what I call a fixing operation. That means they are reaching out and grabbing the Ukrainians by the chest and holding them in place. Right there to the, to, the, to the left of that area is between 70 and 120,000 of Ukraine's best troops. And they can't move because they're being fixed in place by these guys. The second they pull back, the Donetsk people move in and fill the gap. So they have to stay there and fight these guys. Meanwhile, coming up from Crimea and coming down from Kharkiv are what we call pincer operations. They are grinding their way through the Ukrainian military, and they're going to meet right there, right about that place called Dnipro. And, when, and I think they've already met. And when they do that, they've surrounded these people here. And when they surround, it's called a cauldron. That means that everybody in the cauldron will die eventually or surrender because they have no choice. There's another cauldron coming up from Mykolaiv, coming down from Chernev, that's going to engulf the Ukrainian rear area, their logistics bases. And then another cauldron's going to surround Kiev, and yet another one's going to surround Odessa. This is Big Arrow War. But by guys who understand Big Arrow War, the Russians are winning the Big Arrow War. Key aspect of Big Arrow War is logistics. Logistics. Now, people say, wait a minute, aren't the Ukrainians fighting on interior lines, falling back on their logistics? Don't they have the advantage? No, because all of their stuff's being blown up by the Russian Air Force. 
They don't have any more fuel. They don't have any more ammunition. They don't have any more food or water. What happens to a tank, no matter how good the crew is, when it can no longer drive because it doesn't have any fuel? It dies. What happens? All their vehicles are stopped. Right now, the Russians are starting to put out the video. The entire Ukrainian armed forces just stopped in place because they ran out of gas. And also, they all those artillery pieces they're firing, you know, the MLRS, that's a multiple launch rocket system. We see the, you know, it's really cool. Well, it is really cool. But once you fire all that, you to have another couple trucks worth coming in behind with the new rockets so you can fire it again. And if you don't get the trucks coming in, all you have is a truck with a bunch of empty tubes. And that's all the Ukrainians have anymore, empty tubes. So the Ukrainian army is being ground down to nothing. And sooner or later, and I think it's going to be sooner, they're going to collapse. They've been fighting. They've been fighting heroically. They've been fighting with great or, you know, skill. But the Russians are also fighting with great skill, and the Russians are able to sustain their attacks because they have a better logistics system, and this war is all but over. Well, what are the, I hear what you're saying, but what are the capabilities of the Ukrainians to attack the supply line of the Russians? I mean, is there anything they can do to, you know, to interrupt the, the, the supply of food and fuel and so forth that's coming in for the Russian forces? Uh, yeah, I mean that. that uh, of course, that's an objective. But I, I think you're 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 referring to some sort of resistance, uh, you know, uh, you know, guerrilla warfare. Um, easier said than done, um, and it, it's 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 tough to have a guerrilla war. However, when you when you don't have a, a, a sea of fish to swim in, I mean, Mao, you know, talked about you know the guerrilla operates in a sea of fish. You know, we move around and we're in. The Russians have prepared for this quite well. They know all the names of everybody. <laughs> and um, they also have, you know, the CIA has been carrying out since 2015 a covert, and I'll put that in quotations, covert uh, training of Ukrainians in unconventional warfare, irregular warfare. That means these are stay behind guerrillas. So their whole purpose was when the Russians invade, they go to Earth, they, they wait back, and then they pop up and they blow up the supply lines. And, um, well, that's nice, except you and I are talking about it because we had five former CIA people talk to the New York Times and Yahoo about it, and um, the Russians know all about it. Uh, you know, they know that these guys came to the United States. There's a feeling that, that many of the guys they sent to the United States for the training were, in fact, Russian agents. Um, you know, so that's not going to work. But, but, Scott, just to clarify, I, I actually was not referring to guerrilla warfare necessarily i was referring to the to the uh, military the, the, the ukrainian military does does not have the capability to attack the supply lines well to get to get to the supply lines you have to go through the russian lines mm -hmm. <laughs> right now if you're a ukrainian soldier and you're moving you're dead if you're a ukrainian soldier and you get in your truck and you drive you die um all you can do right now is hunker down and pray they don't hit you with artillery and kill you because that's what's happening right now. They no longer have the ability to maneuver. The Ukrainian military is all but finished. It's, it's literally, I, my prediction is you're gonna see an absolute collapse of the Ukrainian military in the days, maybe a week to come. Um, around Kiev, uh, because they've built up some logistics, they, they might be able to fight out a little bit longer. But this force right now that's going off against the, uh, the Russians outside of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk, it's, it's over. They can't do anything. They're out of gas, out of ammunition. They're out of food. They're out of water. They're out of hope. Um, and they're going to die. 
Now, in Western Ukraine, where Lvov is, this is the heartland of the Nazi uh, ideology. By the way, Lvov is Stepan Bandera's homeland. Um, if the Russians are going to carry out their promise to denazify, they're going to have to move into Lvov. And they're going to have to, uh, you know, uh, eliminate not just the armed forces, but the ideology. They're going to have to hunt down the political leadership and destroy the political infrastructure that sustains this hateful ideology. And there used to be a significant Ukrainian military capability here. But uh, lately, they've, they've taken um, all this capability that was by Lvov and they've moved it towards Kiev in an effort to reinforce Kiev. But as I said, once your trucks get on the road, you're fair game. And the Russians have been blowing up these trucks, destroying these battalions. And um, there's just not much left of, of, of the Ukrainian military. Um, I, I right, think well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the plight of uh, ordinary Ukrainians. Uh, the refugees are streaming into Poland. Let's take a look at a news clip. Poland is increasingly overwhelmed. Refugees from Ukraine sleeping in Warsaw's train station. While at the border, another wave of women and children. Nearly 200,000 arrived over the weekend, many unsure where to go. Yelena, her daughter, and her 85-year-old mother say they walked the last 50 miles to the Polish border. When they crossed the border, my mother began to cry because my mother needs help. All these people, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm sorry. They're on their way to Warsaw, then Germany, eventually hoping to get visas to the U.S. At temporary shelters, refugees only stay a night or two. Volunteers help them find more permanent places to stay to make room for the next wave. So there's been many reports that they're being overwhelmed in, in Poland. What do you see happening in the coming days? Uh, it's only going to get worse. I mean, this is a, this is a humanitarian disaster. Um, it's a catastrophe. Uh, Ukraine is a nation of 41 million people being subjected to the kind of warfare that Europe hasn't seen since the end of the Second World War. Um, the Russians are doing their best, level best, to minimize, um, you know, the collateral consequences of war. They, they went in soft, so soft, in fact, that they actually sacrificed their own soldiers' lives rather than to um, put Ukrainian uh, civilians uh, at risk. Uh, I think the Russians... Uh, basically said that uh, there was a miscalculation on the part of Russians thinking that they would be received more warmly, I believe, by the Ukrainians than they actually were. Um, but nonetheless, the Russians aren't uh, deliberately targeting civilians, no matter what the media says. Um, the, the problem is the Ukrainian military has been digging into residential areas and into urban areas and the wars comes in. Once you dig in next to a school or a hospital, it's no longer a school or a hospital. It's, it's, it's a target. Um, that's just the way war works. Um, and, and the people cut in the middle are these are these innocent civilians. And I say innocent. I mean, you know, I'm a little hard on this one, harder than most people, perhaps. But, you know, when 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 Eastern Prussia fell to the Soviets, um, there were millions of Germans on the move from East Prussia trying to get back to, you know, the, the, the rest of Germany. And um, Tens of thousands of them were slaughtered by the Russians coming in. They were caught on the road, strafe, crushed, whatever. And a lot of people, you know, have written about this, and they want you to—they want your heart to bleed for these people. No, you were Nazis. You lived in East Prussia. You—you you benefited economically from the rape of Poland. Uh, you sent your sons to fight in Russia and slaughter the Russians. 
so sorry. And you know what? With Ukraine, you worship Stepan Bandera. You guys have uh, you know empowered this this neo-Nazi ideology. And yes, you can say, well, I'm not one. But you were a Ukrainian citizen who allowed this nonsense to occur. You're not innocent. That doesn't mean that they deserve what happened. Well, uh, I mean, I'm not as sympathetic to the average Ukrainian as maybe some other people are. Well, I, I know you can't be precise, but can you give us some sense of what percentage of the population you're talking about? In terms of supporting Stepan Bandera? Well, the people, or whatever, that the people, you're, you're clearly saying that some of these people deserve some responsibility for their Nazi support or neo-Nazi, whatever word you want to use. But but isn't that... If, you, if you're a Ukrainian citizen and you elected a member, uh, you're a member of parliament to parliament and that member voted uh, in favor of Stepan Bandera Day, uh, then you're to blame. And I think that was, you know, a near unanimous vote. So there's your answer. You know, okay. they all voted for people who went to parliament and, you know, elevated the status of this 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 Nazi, this Stepan Bandera. And by doing so, you empower the, the most hateful elements that are out there doing things because but you elevate their leader, you make them more important than they deserve to be. You give them a, a sense of being, a sense of belonging. Um, no, the Ukrainian people are to blame here. You know, they call themselves a democracy. They're not a perfect democracy, you know, but they, they, they claim to function as one. And therefore, if you're going to say, I'm a democracy, I vote for people, then you have to be held accountable for what those people do in your name. I blame oh, yeah. them as much as I blame the average American about the Iraq war. If you're a congressional representative or senator voted to invade Iraq, and you're as guilty as they are. Because you cast the vote that empowered them to take that action. Ukrainians cast a vote to put people in the parliament that made Stepan Bandera a national hero. All right, so you predict imminent victory for the Russians, and, and how will it change for the people of Ukraine at that point? Russia, you know, who knows? Uh, Russia claims they don't want to occupy Ukraine, and I believe them. They aren't coming in with an army of occupation. If you want to occupy a nation of 41 million, you're going to need <laughs> two, three, four million people to do it. Uh, they're coming in with 200, 220,000 uh, guys. That's enough to defeat the Ukrainian army and to achieve their immediate military objectives. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, Ukraine is going to have to be turned over to some sort of Ukrainian government. Um, I think it's less likely now that Zelensky will be that man. There was a chance early on had he, had he surrendered, had he... Um, you know, done early on what he what he says he's thinking about doing now, that he could have, um, you know, survived uh, the, the 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 process at least initially. I don't know if the Ukrainian people would have forgiven him, um, but I, I think right now that Zelensky is going to be purged. Um, hopefully, that means just let him go into exile, um, but probably not. I mean, you know, right now you have NATO setting up the you know European Union and NATO setting up in Poland a government in exile infrastructure. That is, they, they anticipate the demise of the Zelensky government, So, and they ante anticipate the Russians taking over, and they know the Russians are gonna put in their own hand-picked uh, government. So they're gonna have this resistance government formed operating out of Poland. Um, you know, that, that's already happening. Uh, but, you know, and, and that's gonna create long-term problems. I mean, that's, that's, that's gonna create 
a potential for even greater conflict down the road. But, uh, you know, eventually the Russian troops are going to go home. Now, what home looks like is, is, is another question. I don't imagine, I mean, we know right now that Russia will never give Crimea back. I also don't imagine that Russia is going to allow the Ukrainians the option to shut off the water to Crimea anymore. So I imagine that you're going to see an expansion of what the territory of Crimea looks like uh, northern, northward so they control the flow of oil. Um, I think you're also going to, you know, we know that Lugansk and Donetsk are going to be independent in their entirety. Um, what else happens? Do they want to create a land bridge to the Transnistria re re region in, um, in the east of uh, Moldova, where there's a, you know, where the Russians have sort of a breakaway entity there? Uh, that means occupying Odessa. Uh, are they going to do that? I don't know. Less likely. Um, that's that's a major dismemberment of, of Ukraine. But at the end of the day, there's going to be uh, a Ukrainian state. Um, it's going to be a, a, a state that's in a lot of trouble. I mean, already the Ukrainian government's saying that $500 billion worth of damage has been done to the Ukrainian economy. The Russians have just put the Ukrainians on notice that we're destroying all of your industry. <laughs> Bye. Say goodbye. It's all gone. We're going to destroy it all. But as, uh, as, we, but as we, look at the, we look at the map, Scott, most of Ukraine is in the white, so I could see where people on the eastern border and some towards uh, the north. I think your map's outdated. Oh, all right, it, it might be. Uh, so, can you give us a sense of what of where they are now or where they're headed? Because what I'm what I'm getting at is, is it necessary for the people in the western part of Ukraine to flee? Uh, I could see where you'd need to flee to avoid a combat situation. But if you're not in a combat situation, are people who are not in a combat situation among the refugee population? Do you know? Well, I, I you know, I haven't done a uh, a, a demographic so, breakdown of the refugees where they come from, so I, I don't know. I think the majority of the refugees right now come from um, the areas of of, of of the biggest combat, uh, Kharkov, Kharkiv, up here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to a map that, but right. uh, Kiev. Um, and then down in the, you know, in, in, in the, you see where Kherson is and Mykolaiv. Understand that um, Kharkiv is surrounded right now, that the Russians are pushing down um, and the, a pincer is ready to collapse on Dnipro. See that town called Dnipro? So just imagine a giant yeah. red yeah. arrow coming up from Crimea and a giant red arrow coming down from Kharkiv and they're going to meet just out to, just to the east of Dnipro. That's the reality of the situation today. Um, the same thing with Kiev. The, see where it says Chernyiv up top above Kiev? Mm -hmm. uh, just draw a big arrow that goes right out to the eastern side of that star that says Kiev. Uh, and then draw, draw on the on the western side. Just take that down and have it just hooking underneath the bottom of Kiev. Kiev is almost totally surrounded right now. Um, right. And, right. and you can say, well, there's a lot of white here, Scott, a lot of white. White means nothing. What we'd like to see is the blue, where the Ukrainian army is. Mm. And Kiev is going to be very blue. A lot of Ukrainian guys. But when, when the Russians surround it, that's it. Blue doesn't get outside of that. The same thing with, uh, you know, see where Dnipro is. If you go to east of that, there's a lot of blue there. They're ready to be cut off and surrounded. There's not much blue left. It's all white. And white means there ain't nothing defending it. And when the Russians get rid of all the blue and they move west, you're going to see a lot of people fleeing, especially those who are politically aligned with the neo-Nazi movements. The Russians have all the names. Oh, you're going to see millions of people. Right now, you know, we've got, uh, they, they're talking about, you know, a, two, a little bit more than 2 million people have fled. 
I think you're going to see numbers that they're going to get close to 10, 12, 15, 20 million people fleeing. This will be a humanitarian catastrophe. And here's where here's where it gets interesting, because when you have that many people crowding a border, Europe can't absorb them all. And so what, what what's going to happen is a situation similar to what happened in Syria when all those refugees are trying to get into Turkey. And Turkey said, we need to create a humanitarian buffer zone. Right now, a lot of people in NATO are saying, well, we can't go in and create a no-fly zone because that'll bring us a war with Russia. But I think you're going to, already you have uh, the Secretary General of NATO, Jan Stoltenberg, calling for an emergency summit next week where this issue is going to be discussed. How do we deal with the humanitarian crisis? And I can guarantee you that they're going to talk about invoking Article 4 of the NATO Charter uh, to create um, some sort of legitimate uh, justification for uh, a humanitarian buffer zone along the, the border between Poland and uh, Ukraine where, um, you know, tent, tent cities can be set up to take care of these refugees so they don't have to come into Poland. And there's going to be pressure put on Russia to uh, to accept this. Whether Russia does accept it is, is a question, you know, I don't know at this point. Well, I was talking to our producer, Tori Mansfield, earlier, and I think she has a question about the possibility of a no-fly zone. Tor, you uh, want to jump in and uh, ask Scott what's on your mind? Yeah, sure. I, yeah, I was very curious. Um, yeah, what your perspective was on the demands for a no-fly zone. Um, some people say that that's an act of war. Um, I was just curious, uh, you know, where you're at with that, and if you could explain. Well, it's not where I'm at. It's where uh, where the Russians are, <laughs> and uh, Vladimir Putin made it clear going into this. Um, this incursion, the, the day he announced that they were carrying out the so-called um, special military operation, um, you know, invasion. I guess if I were in Russia, I'd be arrested and put in jail for 15 years for saying that. But it's an invasion. It's not a special military operation. Uh, the, the, when he ordered the invasion of uh, Ukraine, um, he, he told the West, do not get involved. Do not interfere. If you do, you will be punished with consequences beyond your imagination. And the idea was basically saying, I'll nuke you, even though he didn't say, I'll nuke you. And then as NATO continued to build up forces and respond, and sanctions came in and the rhetoric heated up, uh, Putin made it quite clear. He said, I'm putting my nuclear forces on a special state of alert. Now, what that meant is, because of the the, the, the the disarmament had taken place, um, both the United States and Russia had taken their strategic forces off, strategic forces off of hair trigger alert. So you don't have people just sitting there waiting to launch nukes. Um, the manpower was minimal. What he did is simply provide the staffing so that his nuclear forces could be placed on a higher state of alert if he ordered. It, his nuclear forces didn't spin up. There's no nukes ready to be launched, uh, but he basically said, I'm increasing the manpower, getting the guys up to a wartime manning level, even though our actual readiness level is still what it used to be. But he's talking nukes, all right? And let me tell you why he's talking nukes. There used to be between NATO and Moscow, um, in addition, you, you had you know Belarus, you know, and then you had uh, Kaliningrad that had uh, significant military forces, but what, what stopped NATO from being able to mass forces in um, the, 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 Lat uh, the Baltic states and drive on St. Petersburg or drive on Moscow was the presence of 
uh, major military formations like the First Guards Tank Army, the 20th Combined Arms Army, and others, uh, elite fighting forces. Um, those have been removed and brought to Ukraine. This means that there's sort of a gap right now. And, uh, you know, Russia is vulnerable. Uh, if NATO were to, you know, amass, you know, 200, 300,000 troops in, in the Baltics, um, they could launch a lightning strike, surround St. Petersburg, they could drive on Moscow. Um, this is a real possibility. And so what Putin is saying is don't even think about it. If you do, I'll just nuke you. You know, I mean, we're not we're, we're, we're not going to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G. If you come across my border, we're going straight to Z and I'm taking everything out. So don't even think about it. So this is real. And he views any interference as the potential of, of that kind of scenario. So that, now we come to no-fly zone. A, a no-fly zone means that NATO would go in and deny Russia the ability to fly over a specific area. Now, how do you deny Russia the ability? Ask them nicely. What happens when Russia says, stick it in your ear, I'm coming in with my planes to take out the Ukrainian Nazis? And NATO, what, retreats? Then you might as well not set up a no-fly zone. So NATO will have to forcefully confront the Russians. But it's not just forcefully confronting. Before you even attack a Russian airplane to set up a no-fly zone, you can't have a no-fly zone that is threatened by Russian air defense. And the Russians have put S-400 and S-300 and other sophisticated air defenses all around the area. So to have a no-fly zone means that you can't allow the Russians to shoot you down in the no-fly zone. So you're going to have to go attack their air defenses. That's an offensive military operation. Um, and you do that, Russia will nuke everything. So... This is why uh, the wiser heads out there saying <laughs> we're not even considering a no-fly zone because it, it's, 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 it's a major escalation of uh, military operations. Uh, but it's, it, it sounds good. I mean, you have a lot of ignorant people out there saying we need a no-fly zone. They have no clue. Let's stand up to the Russians. Hey, the Russians are ready to stand up. I mean, what part of Putin don't bluff have you not figured out from his invasion of Ukraine? The man doesn't bluff. So he just told you that if you interfere, he's going to nuke you. So why would you even think about interfering? I mean, it's it's just it's absurd in the extreme. And no rational human being is talking about There's a lot of people trying to score political points right now in Congress, um, in the humanitarian area. Uh, and you see Zelensky every day begging for a no-fly zone. He's never going to get it. But he what he's doing is creating the ability to create the mythology of I could have won this war if you had just given me the air. But because you denied me the air, I'm going to lose this war. So it's a political move on his part for face saving. It's a political move on people who want to be seen as doing something uh, supportive of the Ukrainians. But the people who will pay the price, the people who make these decisions have all said unanimously, this isn't even consideration. Well, how do you think or what do you think about the way the Biden administration is handling the situation so far? And with regard to the wiser heads versus the ignorant, uh, how do you expect this to play out in the coming days from the point of view of the Americans? Well, first of all, I blame all of this on the United States. This is one. This war is 100 percent the fault of the United States. The United States has um, known since 2007 that Putin was not going to tolerate eastward expansion that included Ukraine. In 2008, 2009, William Burns, then the U.S. ambassador, wrote a memo. Net means yet. No means no. He accurately said this is the Russian position. And the important thing about this memo, he said, if we continue to push, 
Russia will respond, be forced to respond militarily to destroy Ukraine, take Crimea, take Lugansk. And then, so he knew what the outcome was to be. Nobody can be surprised. We continued to push because all our brilliant non-Russian expert experts who are advising uh, successive administrations have said, uh, Russia's bluffing, they're weak. Putin's weak. He doesn't have the army to do this. He doesn't have the capability to do this. His economy can't handle it. All we have to do is threaten sanctions and the economy can't handle it. Um, and, and now we come back to something we talked about earlier. You know, we, we've, the, people like Michael McFaul and his ilk, uh, including the people advising the president today, have always believed that because the, there's a segment of the Russian middle class that is uh, totally linked to the West economically, that Putin politically couldn't have a divorce with the West. And therefore, by sanctioning, you could always put leverage on Putin. Um, but then, you know, then Biden says, we're going to come in with massive sanctions that totally uh, cut Russia off from that. And Putin went, whoa, if you do that, that means that you're giving me the ability to free myself from the threat of sanctions because you can't sanction that which isn't interacting with you anymore. And by coming in with these sanctions, one, we've destroyed the oligarch class. They no longer count. We've taken all their money. We're taking their boats, everything. They've got no money, no power. They're gone. So forget about the oligarchs. We just did Putin a huge favor because the oligarchs are finished. And that 20% of the population that could have been the swing vote in an election against him, we divorced them as well. Putin never would have been able to say, I'm going to terminate all Russian connection with the West. He would have lost the next election. We terminated all connection between Russia and the West. And now we've empowered Putin. This is what I was talking about. So now Putin now is politically free and he's going to pivot east. And a lot of people have forgotten that February 4th meeting he had with Chinese leader Xi in, in, in Beijing, where they put out a 5,000 word joint statement that talked about Russia and China working with India, Pakistan, Iran, and others to create a trans-Eurasian economic union. And all, you know, what do I think of Biden? I think he's an idiot because he didn't take that seriously. He didn't realize that Putin don't bluff. There's no bluff in Putin. Chinese don't bluff. They bitch slapped Jake Sullivan and, um, and, and, and Blinken back when they met in Anchorage, when they tried to pull the, you know, America is uh, all about the rules-based international order. Do you remember that? Anchorage, Alaska? And the Chinese went, not on my watch. Get out of here with that nonsense. We don't buy it. Sullivan just went to Rome and met with his Chinese counterpart. And you know what happened for seven hours? The Chinese slapped him down and said, get out of here with that. We don't care about you anymore. You don't matter. We will do what we want. And what they want is to work with Russia because the Chinese recognize that what the West is doing to Russia about Ukraine is what the West thinks they were going to do to China about Taiwan. And Taiwan is the next target. I mean, if you don't think that China is going to invade Taiwan in the next five years, then you don't know anything because it's coming. The Chinese, the Russia took all the brakes off. By going into Ukraine, Russia set the precedent of big power is no longer allow itself to be pushed around by the West. And China's looking at going, I like that. I like that. Well, Scott, what I hear you doing is talking about incompetence, but not necessarily bad intentions. So that leaves me wondering, do we do we not also have to worry about bad motives like from war profiteers or they may be pushing for war? The United States 
has, and Dwight Eisenhower warned about this, we became exactly what we warned about, a, a, an economy that's 100% uh, dependent upon uh, the military defense industrial complex, congressional industrial complex. Congressmen, congresswomen get elected to office because of the money they receive from the defense industries, and they repay them by spending $800 billion a year on, 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 on defense. I mean, you know, people say, we're not a socialist country. Oh, yes, we are. What do you think defense industry is? What do you think happens when a government is pouring in, you know, nearly a trillion dollars a year into the economy under the guise of defense spending? Our entire economy is dependent upon this. Um, but what, what, what I'm trying to get at, though, is that we can't say that the war profiteers are pushing for a specific policy and you, they, because they push for every policy. Um, what we have to worry about is the people like Michael McFaul um, and the reason why I say that is, you know, here's a guy who was the ambassador. He pretended he was only about democracy. But now that this invasion's come in, the truth is coming out not only about his thinking, but the thinking of the Obama administration. The American policy towards Russia is regime change. It's been regime change for over two decades now. It's all about getting Vladimir Putin out of office. Now, if you're Vladimir Putin, um, you, you really think, I mean... You, that you're going to be the next Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi, uh, Slobodan Milosevic, because those are all people targeted by the West for regime change. And if you're, um, you know, the President Xi in China, understand that if Putin's targeted for regime change, what are you targeted for? Regime change. This is the real policy. This is the arrogance and the hubris and the danger of America's approach. This is why Russia's doing what it's doing. Russia's taking it all out on Ukraine and going all out to redefine the European security framework because they know the truth. They know that the policy of the United States and the policy of NATO, the policy of the EU is regime change in Russia. They have no intention of living in peaceful proximity to Russia. They want Putin gone. They want Russia to be the compliant uh, subservient state that existed in the 1990s. This is the danger because Russia's awoken to it and they're not going to put up with it anymore. And they're oh, willing you, to go to you mentioned how uh, the U.S. economy is tied to war policy, and right now gas prices are skyrocketing. And I think there are a lot of there's always a lot of questions about what makes gas prices go up. And also, there was a, an exchange between Jen Psaki and Peter Ducey recently that went viral, uh, and it was over whether or not the uh, oil companies have the authorization they need to drill. Let's take a look at that. The largest producers with a strong domestic oil and gas industry. We have actually produced more oil. It is at record numbers, and we will continue to produce more oil. There are 9,000 approved drilling permits that are not being used. So the suggestion that we are not allowing companies to drill is inaccurate. The suggestion that that is what is hindering or preventing gas prices to come down is inaccurate. Would President Biden rescind his executive order that halts new oil and natural gas leases on public lands? Well, 90% of them happen on private lands, as I'm sure you know, and there are 9,000 unused approved drilling permits. So I would suggest you ask the oil companies why they're not using those if there's a desire to drill more. So if she's wrong, that's kind of an annoying smug attitude, but if she's right, then she's right. So can you enlighten us a little bit on this permit issue? Well, first of all, we need to understand that um, there, 
just because you drill oil, pump oil, doesn't mean you produce gasoline. Um, of, of the majority of the oil that's brought out of the ground is not um, conducive to being refined into gasoline. Uh, oil is used for a whole bunch of other products, uh, you know, our plastics industries, just about everything, um, you know, uses some form of oil. Uh, gasoline is just a small part of this. Uh, American refineries um, were for many years, and these are all the Gulf Coast refineries, um, uh, keyed to Venezuelan oil. Uh, Venezuela produces a particular kind of crude that our refineries have been optimized to, to work with. Now, we sanctioned Venezuelan oil, and people are probably saying, why are we buying Russian oil? Because the Russians happen to produce in one of their oil fields a crude that is virtually identical to what Venezuela produced. So when we shut down Venezuela, giving us oil for our to make gasoline for our cars, uh, we, we replaced it with the Russian stuff. Now, the like any industry, um, gasoline is, is, is a commodity um, that, you know, we operate under, you know, razors thin margins of efficiency, meaning that we got to have gasoline coming to the pump, being consumed, and then replaced. Uh, we don't like to stock pile gasoline up over here because of price fluctuations, et cetera. We got to keep the flow going. So as long as Russian gas was coming out, Russian oil was coming out, and then it could get to the refinery. The refineries would plan out how much to turn into gasoline, get that out to the economy, et cetera. And, uh, you know, other, other places do, but our refineries are geared to that Russian, the Russian oil. Everything works fine. Now we've cut off, we, we're, you know, well, I don't know. I just saw the other day that uh, the Russians are still sending tankers of that oil because we have no choice. We have no choice. If you stop the Russian oil, we stop producing gasoline because our refineries can't just, you can't just plug in any oil. That's why we sent James Story and a delegation to Venezuela to, to meet with the non-president of Venezuela, you know, that Nicolas Maduro guy who's falsely occupying Juan Guaido's uh, presidential palace. Um, you know, didn't we go to Guaido and ask for Venezuela to increase oil? He's not the president. The president's a guy named Nicolas Maduro. And we went down there and said, could you please sell us oil? Because if we're going to cut the Russians off, we got to have oil that can go into our refineries or spend the billions of dollars necessary to retune our refineries, retune the whole system. And that takes time. And we don't have time because we operate on razor thin margins of efficiency. We don't have a reserve to fall in. Everybody says, well, what about that big oil reserve? That's oil. That's not gasoline. It's not refined gasoline product. It's oil that comes out and is used to produce plastics and other products, but it's not coming down and being refined into gasoline. That stuff comes from specific sources that we're now locked out of. Uh, this is this is why gas prices are going to go through the roof. Going to go through the roof, as if they not they aren't already. You you think we, uh, they're just going to keep going up, up, up? It's going to become probably, something. If, if Russia, you know, Russia right now so far has done um, nothing uh, that that it could do. It's letting the sanctions um, consume. It's already in France, for instance, uh, Michelin, the big tire maker, mm -hmm. they had to shut down. They can't, they can't, they can't produce anymore because the costs are too high. Um, wait till Americans see, you know, diesel's through the roof right now. It's going to go even higher. Imagine what that does, the transportation does to the cost of all the goods that we have to bring to market so that we can live our nice, fat, happy lifestyle where I can just get my car, drive to a supermarket and everything's brought to me. Uh, well, everything's brought to me on a truck 
that truck uses diesel, that diesel is costing the trucker a, a fortune. Uh, so they're going to have to jack the prices up. And so my paycheck's not getting any bigger. So I'm going to lose all that money. Our economy is, is, is going to shut down, a slowdown. The European economy is in the process of shutting down. And Russia hasn't done a damn thing. They've just let the lunacy of this sanction policy eat itself. But when Russia decides that it's time to play hardball, and they're getting close, then this whole thing's over. It's all over. When Russia hits the switch on the gas pipelines, there is no gas for Europe. Biden lied through his teeth. We are working on alternative. No, any expert knew you didn't have it. Now that they've done it, all the experts suddenly woke up and went, oh, wait a minute, there's not enough liquid natural gas to, uh, to, to, to replace this. Um, and you want to know one of the greatest ironies of this? Liquid natural gas prices have gone through the roof too. China, <laughs> you gotta love the Chinese. The China bought a lot of American gas. You know, we were selling uh, the Chinese a lot of liquid natural gas. And so China now bought the American gas at, I don't know, $500, $600 per whatever unit of sale it is. They're selling it to Europeans now at $3,000 per unit. Mm. <laughs> They're just making money hand over fist. And, you know, the Europeans have to pay this price because they have no choice. But even so, it's not enough gas. They're only getting gas on the margins. If the Russians shut that switch, if they shut down Nord Stream Run, if they shut down Turk Stream, if they shut down the gas pipeline going through Belarus, if they shut down the gas pipeline going through Ukraine, they've still shipped money, uh, the gas through Ukraine. And here's the ultimate irony. They're still paying the Ukrainians the transit fee. So Russia's invaded Ukraine. They're still depositing money because it's a contractual obligation uh, in, in the Ukrainian accounts for the transit fees. Russia's shipping this stuff because they're making money. So they'll make as much money as they can in the short term. But at some point in time, Putin has said, you guys want a divorce? I'll give you a divorce. And when he does, Europe literally shuts down. Literally, it will come to an absolute standstill. And um, and the United, you know, and then that has- Yeah, well, it doesn't sound like the United States is in much better shape though, from what you're saying, because I mean, if the prices are, they're already sky high and you're saying they're gonna keep going up, it sounds to me like we may have a drastic change in our lifestyle also. But so we are, it won't be as bad as Europe, but it, look, it, it's, the American people have to understand that, you know, all these Russophobes out there, I hate Russia, I hate Russia. No, you don't, you don't know what you hate. You hate because you've been told to hate. You hate because you're, you're ignorant and there's fear that comes from the ignorance and somebody has given you a target for you to focus your fear on. But, you know, Russia has been, everybody talks about America's great economic strength. Russia's been using its capabilities to, to make that happen. You, food. Russia just said, we're not selling wheat anymore. But what happens when you take 20, 25, 30% of the world's wheat supply off the market? Who's going to replace it? No one. What's going to happen to food supplies? They're going to collapse. Wow. Um, now America might be able to survive because we have, you know, we, we have, you know, wheat farmers that, you know, are, are you know, we, we can grow our own wheat, but the rest of the world is going to be in a problem. Um, and that's going to put pressure on us because we say we're hurting, the, we want to hurt the Russians. We're hurting the rest of the world. Everybody who has one of these fancy little things, you know, phone, and they're, uh, I got to get going because that's my, or 30, but I'll, I'll leave you with this. Those clones aren't gonna be produced anymore because all the raw materials that go into making the microchips come from Russia. And Russia ain't gonna sell it to us anymore. Well, I, I, I know you gotta go, but can you leave us with a glimmer of hope because you've painted a very bleak picture and if that's the truth, fine, I don't want you to sugarcoat it, but 
if you were the president or, you know, or, or you ha could give advice to the Biden administration, is there anything that could or should be done to ease the oil situation? Lift the sanctions on Russia. These are stupid sanctions. Russia's invaded. Russia's going to win. Um, I mean, if I were the president of the United States right now, I'd pick up the phone to Zelensky and say, surrender. Surrender. Russia made a decision. They've moved in. There's nothing anybody can do about that. Uh, what we have to do right now is mitigate the damage that's been done. Um, we have to find a way to contain Russia's anger. Uh, but yeah, you're done. You're finished. Your days are over. We, we can't support you anymore. Uh, and then I turn to the Western partners and say, before we let Russia walk off to the sun, uh, sun, you know, to the sunset, uh, let's try and bring them back in. Let's see if we can enter negotiations with Russia over a new European security framework um, that retains NATO as an institution, but withdraws NATO infrastructure back to 1997 lines, which is what Russia wanted, um, in exchange for, you know, a, a, a sort of demilitarized zone. Uh, we can come up with a new conventional forces in Europe treaty, a new INF treaty arms control structures, et cetera. In exchange for Russia sitting down and talking to us, we'll lift the sanctions and bring them back into the Western economy so that the economy can function as it's intended to do so. Um, if this happens, we can we can reverse course. There's not a politician right now in power that can stand up to uh, Anna Navarro, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, and um, uh, whoever that idiot from- uh, Well, Mitt, Mitt Romney too. Uh, he accused uh, Tulsi Gabbard of treason. Yeah. Mitt, 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 I took deferments to avoid Vietnam. Mitt, I have five sons who are healthy, none of whom served. No, Mitt, hey God. All right, well, we covered a lot of territory uh, and I wanna, I wanna thank you for your time and your great analysis. Uh, I hope that the Russophobia doesn't get so overwhelming that it's, that it's hard for you to get the word out, but we here at Homefront Rising will always be willing to distribute uh, your views even if YouTube censors us, we'll go to Rumble. We'll do whatever we have to do to get it out. I know that you were a contributor to RT, and uh, they've been silenced. And uh, if we had more time, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about that. So maybe we can get you back soon and, and get into that issue a little bit more. Sure. Thank you very much. And thanks also to Tori Mansfield for producing. Thanks. You're very welcome. Thanks, Scott. Thank you.